Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I get the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Michael S. Allen, who is Assistant Professor at the University of Virginia. We'll be speaking about his brand new 2022 OUP publication, The Ocean of Inquiry, Miss Childis and the Pre-Modern Origins of Modern Hinduism. Um, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The pre-modern origins of modern Hinduism, though, there's a tantalizing thought if ever I heard one. Um, what is, oh, where do we start? What's your book about? Um, well, <laughs> at the narrowest level, it's a book about this figure, Nishtaldas, in the subtitle, uh, who was a, a monk, uh, a member of the Dadu Pant, the Bhakti devotional order. Uh, founded in the 16th century. Uh, and Nishtaldas was born in the late 18th century, flourished in the first half of the 19th century. Um, and he wrote a book, which when I first heard of it, I'd, I'd never heard of it. And most people I talked to have never heard of it. This book, the Vichar Sagar in Hindi, or the Ocean of Inquiry, as I translate that. Um, however, when I was doing work on this, um, trying to learn more about this text, I came across this line by Vivekananda, someone that most people do know and have heard of, unlike Nishtaldas. And Vivekananda referred, uh, paraphrasing, he, he referred to Nishtaldas's book as the most influential book to have appeared in India in 300 years. So that raises this big question. Um, first off, how influential was it? Um, but the other big question is, uh, why have more people not heard of this? Um, so the basic argument of the book is not just about Nishtaldas. It focuses on Nishtaldas, but it raises a bigger question. Why haven't we heard of not just Nishtaldas, but much wider stream of literature? So the first half of the book focuses on Hindi works and more broadly vernacular works uh, that uh, I try to argue have been neglected and that much more work needs to be done understanding vernacular works. And then the second half argues that in fact, the entire period of what I would call late Indian philosophy, uh, roughly 17th to 19th century, um, that, that period we also don't know much about. And, and this is actually pretty shocking, right? I mean, this is a major period, the centuries leading up to the British Raj. And yet there's still a lot, I think, that hasn't been explored both in Sanskrit and in vernacular works. Obviously, English materials have been very well explored and are well known, but both Sanskrit and vernacular materials, there's a lot we don't know. So what I try to argue, uh, the subtitle, Pre-Modern Origins of Modern Hinduism, um, I hope is actually obvious is that to understand the modern, you have to understand the pre-modern. Even if you have the sense of modernity as representing some kind of a rupture, it's always emerging um, out of conditions of pre-modernity. Uh, and in the case of Hinduism, in order to understand what Hinduism became in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, we really have to look back and understand the centuries leading up to that. And not only English sources, but also vernacular sources and Sanskrit sources. And I take Nishtaldas as a representative of those broader currents. 
Uh, first off, I really like the translation as um, 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 the ocean of inquiry. Mm. Um, uh, it has a beautiful resonance in English as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, I really like that in your introductory chapter, one of the sections is literally something along the lines of, um, you know, this book argues the argument of this yes. book. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, have, I have a story there, actually. A, a funny story is that um, when, you know, this is my first book. So uh, it was a long and thorny road from dissertation to this book. And um, when I was working on my dissertation, um, the late and dear Ann Monius, in particular, tried to argue, she said, well, okay, this is fine as a dissertation, but won't work as a book because you have no, you have no narrative arc. You just have independent chapters doing their own independent thing. You need some kind of narrative arc. And at the time being ignorant, (laughs) I thought to myself, well, but no, I mean, each chapter is good. I don't need this narrative arc. And then my first position uh, was teaching a freshman writing course. And as I was teaching this course, I was telling the students, I said, you know, every academic work that you're writing, whether it's a paper you're writing for freshman composition or you know professional academic work, you need to have a thesis. You need to have some argument you're making. And that argument needs to be an answer to some question uh, or a solution to some problem. And as I was saying this to the students, I'm not joking, as I was teaching this, I realized, oh, my dissertation is right. A thesis. <laughs> so yes. So in the book, I wanted to spell that out very clearly. This, this is the argument. This is the, this is the arc. <laughs> That's uh, so many fascinating points in there. Um, um, uh, uh, first of all, uh, I can relate to teaching as a means of learning <laughs> where by virtue of teaching, we, we, we learn something or learn more deeply or in, a, in a more embodied sense. Um, and also one of the ideas that I, I, I disseminate quite frequently in, in terms of, in the context of public talks and uh, continuing studies courses, various places, typically on zoom these days is this idea that storytelling, storytelling is how we make sense of everything. And so whether it's narrative and story, we, we think of storytelling, but yeah, a, 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 a job talk is a story, right? Um, mm-hmm. A book is a story. We have to be able to tell a story. Um, I'm also reminded of, I, we, I <laughs> strangely enough, I consume very little online content. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably busy yeah. producing it in terms of the podcast and the courses. Yeah, um, very little. Uh, um but I listened. I and I I listened to a podcast. It was um, Sanskrit Studies podcast. It's um, Antonio Ripoll. Um, it's associated with yogic studies. It was, uh, Wendy Donig was on the podcast. Uh, uh, very charming uh, style. I mean, her her style of speech is a story, right? She speaks in story. Um, but. What she said is, look, I would just write books, I'd write stuff, and I wouldn't even know what the argument was until the reviewer comments came back and told me, oh, Wendy Doniger's arguing this, this, and this. And she's like, uh-huh. oh, I guess that's what I'm arguing. She's internalized the power of story such that she can right. tell a story without consciously understanding the story she's telling. Uh, so I, I find that fascinating for a number of reasons, but we digress. Hmm. 
what would you consider the modern period um, tentatively and, and why? What, for a more, for more general audience, what does that mean? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So, um, I mean, periodization is notoriously difficult <laughs> um, with Indian materials because often we just take these periods from, you know, European, Euro-American, Western history and then apply them. And they don't necessarily apply. I mean, conventionally, there are a lot of scholars working now um, that um, uh, Sheldon Pollock, of course, had led this um, project called Sanskrit Knowledge Systems uh, on the Eve of Colonialism. And for that project, I forget the dates exactly, but I think I think they date it to 16th century, the early modern period, um, kind of. I, I should look up before I say what the dates are for that. Uh, but to me, there's uh, an important transition from, say, early modernity to modernity proper with the 19th century British colonial experience in India. So I would say 19th, 20th century with modernity um, proper, but obviously there's earlier uh, traces of that going back to 16th century, some people have argued. Why... Um sort of a meta question i guess all of my questions are meta questions why is there this um uh, this paucity of research on the pre-modern period why is it so opaque uh, yeah in terms of scholarship yeah so that that's exactly what what the book delves into um so the argument i'm trying to make uh is twofold um again so the first half of the book focuses on vernacular material so i think the first question is why are people not studying um I mean, some people are, but why are not enough people not studying vernacular materials, right? And there are so many of them in all of the different regional languages of India in precisely this period, right? 16th to 19th centuries, obviously into the 20th, 21st century as well, but vernacular materials. And then the second question is, why are people not reading Sanskrit works um, from this period? Um, now, the situation is much improved, beginning with Sheldon Pollock's project, and many scholars uh, now have worked on that period, especially the 16th um, century. We know a lot more about figures like Appayadikshita, for example. There's a lot of really excellent work. There are, there are a lot of figures that were lesser known that are now beginning to be better studied. So these, these are good signs. But so what I argue is uh, there, there are a couple things. First, for the um, Sanskrit side of things. Um, there is this narrative, talking about the power of story, there's this narrative that this is a period of decline, um, that somehow Sanskrit textual production uh, stagnated. And all of the really great original creative works belong to an earlier period. And uh, I think many people without even reading the later works have just assumed this is true, right? So you ask... Um, you know, your average, certainly Sanskrit student, but even Sanskritists, right? You know, what's a work you've read from the 18th century, right? I don't think many people would just off the top of their head say, oh yeah, you know, here's some 18th century works, but that's not because works weren't being produced in the 18th century. There are tons of Sanskrit works being produced in all of these centuries uh, that people aren't reading. And again, I think there's a kind of bias um, uh, that there's not the same creativity or originality in this period. Alongside that, the materials I work on in particular, so I specialize in Vedanta, I specialize in Advaita Vedanta. And when you read the literature of that period, it's scholastic literature um, by and large, um, uh, literature that to an outsider seems to go very deep into the weeds with hair splitting, technical distinctions. Uh, and I think most people find it boring. And you get this narrative even in scholarship on Advaita Vedanta. So I mentioned in the book, I, I remember my jaw dropping when I read a book. Um, it was a dictionary of Advaita Vedanta. And this short little preface said, oh, Advaita Vedanta is a tradition that began with the celebrated Shankaracharya, fine, 
and ended with Madhusudana Saraswati in the 17th century. <laughs> and my jaw dropped thinking, what, what, what on earth does it mean to say Advaita Vedanta ended when clearly it didn't? Um, but there is this wider narrative, even in scholarship of Advaita Vedanta, as the later period is a period of decline, um, that all of the really original creative stuff was done earlier. And then people lose that spirit somehow, and it falls into this state of stagnation. So I, I argue that this is, it's not just about Vedanta, but this is part of a larger narrative that I think is inherited from Western critiques of scholasticism in the modern period, precisely this idea of wanting to make a break with these decadent, stagnant scholastic traditions. Um, and in the history of philosophy, of course, people often skip over this period, right? You study classical philosophy, Greco-Roman philosophy, and then you really skip over, at least used to skip over the whole period of Middle Ages, scholastic philosophy, and all of a sudden, let's come to Descartes, right? Modern philosophy. Um, so the question is, uh, why is there this neglect? And I try to argue that this is really inherited already from a Western critique of scholasticism that you see internalized by um, Indian authors, Ram Mohan Roy, um, you know, S. Radhakrishnan, Vivekananda as well, all fierce critics of scholasticism, even though they saw themselves as inheritors of Vedanta. So this sense of what is the real Vedanta is this earlier, original, pure tradition represented by Shankara. And then different people will date it at different periods. Some people say after Shankara, Shankara's immediate successors somehow failed to capture the spirit of Shankara and got lost in metaphysical um, school building uh, and technical wrangling. Others will say, oh no, it was still kind of a lively tradition up until maybe 14th century or 17th century Madhusudana. But the idea is that the tradition at some point entered this period of decline. And my book tries to call that into question um, and say, well, what does it mean to speak of it as a period of decline when at the level of textual production, there's no decline at all. People are writing as much or more than ever in Advaita Vedanta. We have hundreds of texts from the early modern um, period. Uh, and yet by and large, those texts aren't being read. Um, many of them haven't even been published. They just exist in manuscript because there's this sense of, well, is it really worth going all the trouble, right? Of editing these texts when there's not really much original to be found there. Again, this is changing. Fortunately, there are several good scholars, uh, working on precisely this period. Um, uh, and I think that's an excellent thing because what I try to argue is there's so much there and how can we possibly, I mean, the, the simplest form, the argument is with the Sanskrit materials, how can we possibly understand when say we're looking at the 19th century, and we're trying to evaluate with the uh, origins of modern Hinduism, or at least specific formulations of Hindu identity that emerge in, say, the late 19th century with someone like Vivekananda. How can we possibly understand what's new, what's novel in that formulation, unless we understand <laughs> what's been written, what's been thought um, by intellectuals? in the preceding, say, two centuries. And insofar as we're not reading those works, we don't really have a sense of what's new and what's not in someone like Vivekananda or Radhakrishnan. So that I went on too long there, but that's the Sanskrit side of things in a nutshell. Um, trying to The book tries to recover the intellectual values of scholastics themselves. Um, I mean, that's a broad task, but specifically looking at Nishjaldas as a window, window to um, wider uh, uh, kind of Vedanta of the period. Um, to trying to reconstruct those values and say, well, what did scholastics themselves see as the value in their works? 
So that's that's the Sanskrit side of things. Then very briefly, I'll keep it shorter here, the um, the vernacular side of things. Um, I guess I'll start with a little uh, autobiographical detail. So for me, I fell into this work quite by accident um, because I studied Hindi when I was in college. And um, I, I did it just because I loved it and I wanted to be able to speak the language when I was in India. Um, but I didn't think of it as a key part of my research because I was doing Sanskrit. I wanted to do Sanskrit in graduate school and I wanted to study Advaita Vedanta. And my sense was, look, if you want to study Advaita Vedanta, you study Sanskrit, you don't study Hindi. Um, and then the question was, well, what is Hindi good for? What's the vernacular language good for? And I think already at the level of graduate training, it's really important to let people know what these languages are good for, because I had the sense, oh, well, if you want to study Bhakti, then you should study Hindi if you're interested in um, pre-modern uh, traditions. Or if you're interested in modern traditions, you want to do ethnographic work, certainly need Hindi. Those are two things that were impressed on me. That's what Hindi is good for. But no one told me, oh, Hindi is really good for Advaita Vedanta. But in fact, it is because there are all of these materials um, in Hindi from the 16th all the way up to 20th um, century being composed in Hindi that relatively few people are reading, certainly outside of India. Um, so I think already at the level of graduate training, there needs to be a better sense of the richness of these vernaculars and, and the range of texts. And fortunately, again, this is changing. So um, the, the late um, Alison Bush made tremendous contributions to starting to uncover um, help us see the value in literary productions in Hindi, not just bhakti poetry, um, but literary productions. Tyler Williams has also done work on this, uncovering there's just vast range of yogic texts, um, texts on astronomy, medicine, cooking, um, to say nothing of then Vedanta um, in Hindi and other vernaculars as well. Um, so I think uh, part of it's just linguistic. There aren't enough people trained to study these languages, but also trained with that particular focus of trying to uncover, say, if you're interested in philosophy or intellectual history, um, those texts in vernacular from um, from this modern period. So let's let's maybe um, drill down on that a little bit. Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> and at the same time, perhaps try to keep it accessible. We'll, yes, we'll, yes. We'll, we'll aim for a paradox, shall we? Um, uh, the work that you see being done in, in, in these commentaries in these texts, uh, say within Vedantic thought, is it different, fundamentally different from say the work that, um, that Vivekananda was doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> don't want to answer that with a, well, yes and no. <laughs> Yes. Oh, and good. No. So, I mean, part of part of the argument I'm trying to make is that Vivekananda is inheriting something that's already there, um, but there is tremendous novelty and creativity in Vivekananda. And I would say, in some respects, um, you know, Nishtal Vas died in 1863. That was the year Vivekananda was born. Um, so there's this interesting kind of transition. In some ways, there is continuity, but in other very important ways, they inhabited two entirely different intellectual worlds. Um, and you see this specifically with writing of commentary, writing of um, scholastic style works. This was something that Vivekananda disparaged. Um, he thought this kind of scholastic writing got away from the spirit, true spirit of Vedanta, which is all about realization. It's about direct, mystical, 
uh, realization of Brahman, he specifically says this has nothing to do with books. It has nothing to do with theories, right? This is about that lived experience of realization. Um, and for Nishjaldas and the scholastic tradition he represents, um, that statement might even be incomprehensible, <laughs> I think. The idea that it's about realization, it's about direct knowledge, it's not about books or theories. Uh, for Nishjaldas, there is no... Um, dichotomy between those two at all. Books and theories are precisely what give us realization. Hence the value of these scholastic treatises uh, is they are precisely, I've tried to argue in the second half of the book, this scholastic method of say a kind of sick get known, kind of you raise a, a question and then you say, well, what's the answer to this question? You consider it from all different sides. You go back and forth debating again and again in what might seem like hair splitting detail. This, I try to argue, this is the method of inquiry captured in the title, where you have a proposition and you inquire into both sides. Uh, you raise doubts, try to provide answers to those doubts. So I argue in the book that this, um, this dialectic, this inquiry is for Nischeldas not something abstract or purely academic or purely theoretical, but it is for Nishjaldas actually the central spiritual practice. It's the central method on the path to liberating knowledge of Brahman. I find that fascinating for so many, many reasons. And I can't help but draw parallels in the modern world between the ways in which people use. Uh, for example, um, if I'm publishing with Rutledge on the Devi Mahatma, it's clearly a scholarly work. Mm -hmm. um, um, I've been asked to do a, trans, a new translation of the text. Oh, I, I guess I just leaked that. Oh, I'm doing a new translation of the text, oh, everybody. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, actually, I put it on Facebook, so it's already official because, you know, Facebook is the mark of, mm -hmm. of officialness. Um, um, but now the decision as to, well, is it for the audience who would read The Ocean of Inquiry? <laughs> or is it for the audience who would read Vivekananda? See, this is this is very right. much attention. Even presently, the translation is a translation, and it's it's hopefully lucid and somewhat poetic. It, it's it, it's been um, crafted attentive to to English cadence and and, and rhythm. Right, Coburn's is, is is fantastic. It's a it's a it's a it's a close, rigorous scholarly translation. So I've endeavored to 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 craft a, a faithful tran translation that's a little bit more mindful of how things sound in English. Right, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so now, you know, do 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 I approach OUP? Do I approach SUNY? Do I approach Mandala? Do I write a spiritual commentary? Right? Do I talk about, you know, um, uh, am I, is this translation to be used by anybody, whether scholars or practitioners, but, but will it be in a publication for um, Shakta seekers of various stripes, whether, right, whether right. adopters or inheritors, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just find it utterly fascinating. Um, and, and the reasons for which um, um, figures like Vivekananda would have dismissed the scholastic tradition what I'm picking up is it's different. This is, this is different for the reasons for which um, colonial scholars or the reasons for which scholars of the history of philosophy in the West would have dismissed that period. Could you say a little bit more about that? Um, well, actually they, they seem related to me. They seem related. Um, I, you could draw a distinction, I suppose, is that I think philosophers are often interested in um, 
creativity. They're interested in novelty in new approaches, modern philosophers, right? So this is characteristic of modern academic intellectual values uh, is we value originality, right? From, from that freshman composition class when I teach it, right? The need to have an original thesis, right? Is impressed on all of us. Um, and of course, that's very different when you're sitting down and say, early 19th century, uh, writing in um, Brajbhasha or Hindi, something like that, uh, you don't have that sense of, all right, what's my original thesis, right? What do I have that's new to this? That's not necessarily the same approach that um, pre-modern or even early modern authors had. Um, so I, I think a lot of philosophy is, uh, or philosophical interest in this, people are interested in in that creativity, originality. For Vivekananda, it, it's related to that, but it's a little different. It's not originality that he's interested in for its own sake. It's instead what's spiritually efficacious in his view, right? What's going to lead to liberating experience. And he simply doesn't think this kind of academic philosophy does. He thinks, in fact, it's a distraction. Um but I should, uh, just a quick point on the, the first, the critique of uh, lack of creativity or novelty. What I try to argue is um, you can shift your perspective somewhat when you look at these texts, right? So anytime you're reading a work of Vedanta, obviously, so in Vedanta or any in Indian philosophy, we talk about um, Siddhantas, which are more or less the doctrines. They're the established positions of each school. And for the most part, if you're reading Vedanta, you know what the Siddhantas are, you know what the main positions are. And in fact, it would be unreasonable to expect to sit down and read a work of Vedanta and for the author to say, oh, you know what? <laughs> Actually, Brahman doesn't exist and we can explain the world without Brahman. Well, then it's not a Vedantic work, right? It's maybe a very interesting new take on Charvaka, but it's, it's not a, a Vedantic work. So Vedantic writers from our perspective are constrained, right? It's not a totally free inquiry where you can follow the argument wherever it leads, but they're constrained by these are the doctrines which we're setting out to explain and defend. However, what I argue is that there's actually a great deal of originality uh, what I call a kind of procedural originality, um, that even though the final conclusion is a given, what's the path to get there? And if you look at the way in which, um, so Nishtal Das's work is a dialogue between a guru and three disciples, three brothers, uh, and the guru will offer the initial teaching and each of the brothers will raise questions, they'll raise doubts. And the guru then answer that. And there's a long auto commentary, a commentary in prose on that, that verse dialogue by Nishtal Das going into the ins and outs of the discussion. Um, and there's actually significant creativity and originality in that process of how do you lead the disciple through that maze of doubts all the way back to where their final doubt is removed and they now understand and accept the original doctrine, which isn't original at all. It's something you could have read you know, a thousand years ago in any Vedantic work. So what I try to argue is that it takes a new kind of appreciation um, philosophically for the details uh, of the argument, the procedure of the argument, uh, also a kind of aesthetic appreciation. I think you can start to develop. This has been an acquired taste for me, um, but I give the analogy. It's like when you, um, you know, when you watch a game of chess, for example, the beginning point is always the same. The pieces are set up the same, and the end point is always the same. Right? Either one side is going to checkmate the other, or it's going to be a stalemate. That's it. Right? And 
why a game of chess can be interesting and beautiful is the process, the procedure from that starting point to the end point. So likewise in Vedanta, the initial Siddhanta and then the return to that Siddhanta at the end of the inquiry back and forth, those are given fixed points, but there's considerable creativity and sometimes even beauty to be found. Um, I think even from a modern perspective, looking at these texts. Now from a spiritual perspective, Nishtal Das himself sees that process of removing doubts as the spiritual method he's most interested in. So it's not even the doctrines themselves, but the process of removing doubts through those particular arguments. Well, the, the arrival, uh, the positing of the doctrine versus the realization of the doctrine, right? Yes. Although what's interesting is, so the, the, this was, this was what was eye-opening to me. So the, the second half of the book, um, to me, uh, focused on a question that I had always had studying Advaita Vedanta is, you know, Vedanta is very famous for teaching Advaita Vedanta, very famous for teaching that knowledge is what liberates. So the key question is, what does knowledge mean there, right? Are we talking about book knowledge? I can just open up an introduction to Advaita Vedanta and that's going to liberate me. Are we talking about some kind of special knowledge achieved through meditation? What do we mean by knowledge? And this is precisely where you have different interpretations and you get say Vivekananda's view versus the more or less mainstream um, Sanskritic view. And that's the view then adopted by Nishtal Das, even though he's writing in a vernacular, the mainstream Sanskritic view, um, usually attributed to the so-called Vivarana sub-school for the uh, uh, Vedanta specialists. The, the main view is that, um, that actually it's just a pretty ordinary kind of knowledge, or at least a knowledge that's perfectly analogous in its functioning to ordinary knowledge. It has a different object, namely Brahman, but the knowledge itself is just a case of Shabda jnana or verbal awareness, verbal testimony. So it's the exact same thing. They would say, if I say, you know, um, uh, anything, if I say there's, there's a chair in the room next door, right? This is the example I give. If you say there's a chair in the room next door, uh, listeners can't <laughs> see this, but if I say, oh, I'm in my office and there's a chair in the room next door, that creates an awareness in your mind of a chair in the room next door. And for Vedantans, uh, assuming that I'm a reliable speaker, that is then a perfectly valid awareness that's been created in your mind. In exactly the same way, when I say, um, asi, you are that, you are Brahman, when, not when I say it, when a guru says it, that creates an awareness in someone's mind, an awareness uh, created by that, that verbal statement. And assuming the person is a reliable speaker, it should be a perfectly valid knowledge. And Advaita Vedanta, this Vivarana school represented by Nishtal Das, in fact says, that's what liberates you. It's just that verbal knowledge that you get from your guru saying what's what's in the Vedas or hearing the Vedas um, that liberate you. So this is somewhat baffling, though, right? Because we have the obvious. Because then why aren't folks liberated by the intellectualization or the cog cognition exactly. of this truth? Certainly saying that vanilla is delicious will not confer an experience of vanilla. Exactly, exactly. So um, this then leads uh, to the distinction is that, well, there's a difference between verbal testimony that has something distant as its object versus something immediate as its object. So if you say to someone, there's a chair in the room next door, that creates an indirect knowledge. 
But if you say to someone, uh, you know, there's Advaita Vedanta gives the famous example of a bracelet that you're looking for that's on your wrist and you're in a dither, you're like, ah, where's my bracelet? I can't find it. And someone says, oh, it's on your wrist, right? That's also verbal testimony. But since its object is immediate, when I say your bracelet is on your wrist, that verbal testimony leads to a direct <laughs> experience, right? Oh, the vanilla is on your tongue already. It leads to um, a direct experience of the bracelet. So they say it is... Um, still analogous to ordinary experiences, but it's still just this verbal testimony. Where it then gets elaborated though, is it says, why is it that even in that case, right? Of someone saying you are Brahman and it has this immediate object, because in fact, according to Advaita Vedantins, you are Brahman. Why does that not liberate? So the tradition, many, many authors go into this, uh, say, well, there must be some obstacle, right? If there's no obstacle, and knowledge, the, the epistemic faculties are all there. Everything's functioning. You have a reliable speaker um, and your ears are functioning properly. Your mind is functioning properly. You're attentive. You're able to take in. You understand what's being said. If all of these conditions are met, you, you should be liberated, right? And, and this is pretty shocking. <laughs> the claim is just someone saying you are Brahman. That should be enough. But in fact, insofar as it doesn't happen, we have to stop and think, well, what are the obstacles? And Nishtaldas in particular, um, uh, uh, this isn't an innovation of his, um, but the view he inherits is that there are three main obstacles. Uh, that first there's impurity at the level of the kind of inner faculty, the soul, so to speak. Um, and that this uh, first needs to be purified. In the book, I try to go into length showing why this isn't arbitrary, but for Nishtalas is actually tied into his epistemology of how knowing works, even in ordinary cases, requires a certain purity, uh, a mental purity uh, in order to know anything. Um, so that's the first obstacle. Um, the second obstacle is vikshepa, he calls it. It's like instability or kind of mental scattering, inability to focus, for example. So, and here we see this in an ordinary way too, right? If you're trying to study calculus, <laughs> but you're really, really tired and sleep deprived, right? We've all had that experience of trying to learn something that's really difficult, but we can't because our mind is kind of fuzzy or scattered. Well, Vedantins say you need an exceptional degree of stability for the subtle truth of Brahman. So that's the second obstacle is a kind of a scattered mind. What's interesting is both of these <clears throat> obstacles, instability and um, impurity, excuse me, <clears throat> both of these obstacles are things you're supposed to have taken care of before you come to the study of Vedanta. So this is the whole notion of adhikara or who's qualified, um, who's eligible to read Vedantic texts. And I think when people read Vedantic texts, it's very easy to forget about this, right? Is that whenever you pick up a Vedantic text, you're really picking up kind of volume two and volume one is supposed to be all the practices you're supposed and, to have done to prepare yourself for volume two. And the very notion that we can't escape uh, being in the West and being scholars is this paradigm that we assume of reading a Vedantic text as opposed to hearing one that's been internalized and memorized by a person that you're going to right. learn it from them, right? right. These weren't texts that were texts in the sense that novels or they were never meant to be, Hey, go read this. Right. They were spoon fed uh, verses you know, right. in, in relationship based on, as you see, Adhikara. Right. So right. 
Absolutely. Um, Although in Nishaldas's case, it is interesting is he does specifically at one point say whoever hears or reads this text. So he does have a sense that at this period in history that people are engaging uh, with this text even on their own, but he still says you still need to have a guru, right, who's teaching you the text. So, uh, so many, I, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm resisting the urge to stay in the weeds. One more. One, we're not yes. really in the weeds, but but I typically we're very 30,000 foot view. But I have to ask, <laughs> regarding that perspective of um, how self-evident uh, jnana should be, uh, realization should be based on, you know, the verbal assertion of, you know, you are Brahmin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then, then how do you square that? How does this tradition square that with the different pramanas or means of knowledge? You've got uh, you direct perception, you've got inference. Why on earth would you need revelation? If right. Direct perception and inference were sufficient. Well, so that that's just it, is that inference only gets us indirect knowledge, right? Inference can never give us direct knowledge of something, um, according to... Vedantins, all inferential knowledge is indirect. Perception is direct, but the problem is Brahman, the Vedas say, is not an object of perception because perception is always mediated through the senses. Um, there is the case of yogic perception, kind of bracket that, that would be getting deep into the weeds, um, but ordinary perception just can't get us there. Um, so we need something else, something that can get us direct knowledge of something beyond the reach of the senses. And that's exactly what verbal testimony is. And that's not only the Vedanta position, that's the Mimamsa position as well. How do you know about Dharma? What, how do we know about what's right and wrong and what the results of our actions are karmically? We can't, it's not accessible through perception. Um, and Mimamsa would say we can't infer it either. So that's what we need the Vedas for. And Vedanta inherits that position is that's exactly what Shabda Pramana verbal testimony gives us um, is knowledge and this particular school of Vedantins would say even direct knowledge. Now there is another view even within Vedanta, not Nishtaldas's view, that actually verbal testimony can only give us indirect knowledge. And after you achieve that, you then need to meditate to convert that indirect knowledge into direct knowledge. And this is more or less Vivekananda's position. Um, but for Nishtaldas, that's not required. Um, and instead what's required is this philosophical process of removing doubts. So when I say, when the guru says you are Brahman, the reason Nishtaldas would say, I'll take myself as an example that I'm not liberated is because at some level, I don't believe it, right? I hear the words, I am Brahman. And I think, no, I'm not, <laughs> right? Um, Brahman is supposed to be this infinite blissful reality. And I am not infinite. I am not blissful. Right? I have direct experience of the lack of bliss on a daily basis. So Nishtal Das says that's exactly the obstacle is this doubt is created. So you then need a teacher to explain, well, how is it that if I'm Brahman, I'm miserable, <laughs> which is more or less the question that the first disciple asks is precisely this, is that, look, Brahman is, is blissful. I'm not right? Um, so what you're saying can't possibly be right. And then the guru has to go through this philosophical inquiry to explain exactly how it is possible. And that leads into all sorts of like diving deep into Vedanta's, what does it mean to be you? What are the different levels or, or uh, parts of a self? How do we identify ourselves, uh, et cetera? Um, but again, the, the process is all about removing those doubts until you're brought to a level finally where you say, oh, you are Brahman. 
and you're free of doubts. And it's that doubt-free awareness that's liberating. It's not some kind of additional meditative awareness. It's the original verbal awareness, but free of all doubts for someone who's properly qualified and done all the practices of purification, et cetera, already. Well, one supposes to be free of doubts is to be beyond the manas anyhow. Um, who might most benefit from reading this book? Yes, uh, that's a good question. Well, I hope all scholars of and students of Hinduism would have some interest in the book. Uh, we should probably touch on, I guess, the final chapter tries to make a pretty big argument um, about the, the so-called construction of Hinduism debate. Where, where does Hinduism, as we many people understand it today, where does that notion of a single unified um, tradition come from? So the last argument makes uh, the last chapter makes an argument about that. So I think it would be of interest to any scholars, students of um, of Hinduism. Uh, I think also anyone with an interest in Vedanta um, uh, as a scholar, as a student, but also I think practitioners. Um, I think especially in India, right? Advaita Vedanta continues to hold this position of prestige. Um, and I think there are many, many people uh, interested and hopefully this will help them um, kind of situate some of the, what I call the unwritten history of that tradition, some of the forgotten scholastic texts and try to understand the values of those texts. Since you've opened the door, what is your argument about this thing called Hinduism? Yes. So <laughs> um, let me back up first and say a little of, about where this book came from, right? Is where this book came from is studying Vedanta, right? I, I went through this book is kind of my third phase because my first phase was back in college before I knew anything. I just read things like Vivekananda and Radhakrishnan. And I just assumed when I went to graduate school, not knowing anything, I want to study Vedanta because that's the most important school of Indian philosophy, right? And Advaita Vedanta, because this is the culmination of Indian philosophy. But then you actually engage with the scholarship and you realize, so you think, right? There's a very prominent argument that, well, in fact, Advaita Vedanta is only one school among several schools of Vedanta. And Vedanta itself is only one philosophical stream and there are many. So the really interesting question is, when did this idea arise, which is extremely widespread in late 19th, early 20th, all the way up to the present day, this idea of Advaita Vedanta as the culminating philosophical tradition of India. Where does this idea come from? When does it arise? Why? How? Where? When? Who? All of the questions we can ask. And one prominent scholarly narrative is that this was a colonial construction and that prior to the colonial period, Vedanta was indeed just one school among many, Advaita Vedanta. And that at first I thought was true. And then the more I began to study, the more I began to question that. And now I don't think that's true. It is true that Advaita Vedanta is one school among many, but in the second millennium, it was not just one school among many. There have always been a multiplicity of philosophical views there, and I don't think we should accept a, a purely hegemonic discourse of Advaita Vedanta as the only game in town. But over the course of several centuries in the second millennium, Vedanta broadly, and also Advaita Vedanta specifically, rose to a certain position of prestige. And by the early modern period, that was already solidified. That is to say, um, prior to the British colonial period, the people who talk about a construction of Vedanta, its elevation in, say, the 19th century, prior to that, it already occupied a position of prestige. Uh, we could go into the 
details there, lots in the book trying to give evidence for this position that already in the pre-modern and early modern periods, Vedanta was really, really important. Um, and that undeniably there was an element of colonial scholars, administrators, um, engaging with that tradition in particular ways. I'm not denying there wasn't a construction that went there and that there's not much that's new, but I don't think we should see that as coming out of a vacuum. There's this pre-existing popularity and prestige for the tradition. So by extension, then <laughs> that, that leads to my position, um, on Hinduism, the construction of Hinduism. I think this is an extraordinarily complex question. And one thing I try to do in the final chapter is just say, I think there are many strands in this debate, right? Of people saying on the one hand, um, probably most of your listeners are familiar with this debate, but it's central to the study of Hinduism, right? Um, very simplified 30,000 foot view is Hinduism. Does it exist in the pre-modern period? Or in fact, is Hinduism with quotation marks, um, a label that was invented and applied to a diverse range of traditions, um, and that it really represents a colonial construct, this idea, uh, an imagined idea of what this unified tradition is. Um, the most um, oversimplified view of it see, sees it as just a, a kind of project of colonial power. Um, and then more subtle versions of this constructionist hypothesis sees the importance of Brahmin pundits uh, at working with colonial administrators, and then later Hindu reformers uh, like Vivekananda um, of also using this uh, uh, colonial construction against the colonizers themselves to create this kind of unified national identity around this idea of Hinduism. And then on the other hand, uh, you have scholars um, like David Lorenzen um, uh, in his uh, uh, influential article, Was Hinduism Invented?, um, arguing no, that in fact, even though the term Hinduism is relatively late, there's clearly some sense of unified tradition already in the Puranas. I'd let you comment on that, Raj, but um, already in the Puranas, some kind of at least proto sense of Hindu identity, and that then it becomes crystallized through the encounter with Islam later. And then Andrew Nicholson, of course, um, brought this argument, I think, to a very wide audience in his book, Unifying Hinduism, um, uh, agreeing and arguing with Lorenzen that um, that no, there is in fact some unified sense of Hinduism um, in the pre-modern period. So the debate is complex. And <laughs> part of what I try to argue is there are many strands here. And I think if you focus on certain strands, the constructionist position is going to be more appealing. And if you focus on other strands, the anti-constructionist uh, position is going to be more appealing. I think undeniably, when we say Hinduism, modern Hinduism, insofar as that calls to mind, particularly modern notions of religion, what a religion is, what a world religion is, obviously that did not exist in the pre-modern period. I think it's also a mistake to think that modern Hinduism, insofar as it's considered to be the religion practiced by all Hindus in India, then I think the kind of formulations that Lorenzen and Nicholson point to are a little misleading because they are very Sanskrit-centered, text-centered. Uh, they neglect um, a lot of um, just village practice Hinduism. They neglect uh, certainly subaltern practices. And insofar as you then try to take this originally Brahminical Sanskrit textual view of a unified tradition of Hinduism and impose that on everything, I think that's extremely misleading.
So I do have some sympathy on the constructionist side. However, I also have a lot of sympathy on the other side. If you focus on the endological strand of just, well, was there already some sense of a unified identity among some thinkers that we now retrospectively label as Hindu um, in the pre-modern period, then I think the question, the answer is uh, certainly without any doubt. Um, and what I try to show in the final chapter of the book is I take Nischaldas and I look at the last chapter of the Ocean of Inquiry, which is something of a mini encyclopedia of Hinduism, where he tries to show this, this view of how all of the different Hindu philosophical schools are actually all united and how all of the different theological sects and worship of different deities, how they're all actually worshiping the same deity. And therefore, both at the level of philosophical doctrine and um, theological commitment and also ritual practice uh, embedded within those theological commitments, he sees a unity behind it all, that they are all Vedic. They're all pointing you ultimately towards the Vedas and towards Vedanta, ultimately. So you take this view you know, he was writing in the first half of the 19th century that seems characteristically modern. And what I then tried to do is show, well, actually, none of this is new to Nishtaldas. And I show how he draws from Madhusudana Sarasvati and Apayadikshita, two earlier thinkers, and then how they draw from earlier thinkers. And I trace this back over the centuries. In particular, um, I look at the Vidyasthana framework that I don't think has been brought into this debate um, or receive the sufficient attention. And that's the idea going all the way back to, um, uh, well, it's already in the Dharma Shastras, um, the Yagya Valkya Smriti, and in Shabara, actually, so Lorenzen has this article um, I mentioned, um, was Hinduism invented? I've always thought a little facetiously, I could, could have written an article instead of this final chapter of the book, did Shabara invent Hinduism or did Kumarala invent Hinduism? So they're these very famous early Mimamsa thinkers. And I try to show that they're the ones that first developed um, this idea of Veda Mulatwa, of what does it mean to have texts that are not the Vedas themselves, but are rooted in the Vedas, and therefore belong to the Vedic world. Now, for Shabra, this was quite constrained. He was really just talking about these Dharma Shastric texts, texts uh, 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 about Dharma, and trying to say, look, even though they're separate from the Vedas, they must have been rooted in the Vedas, in some kind of lost Vedic texts. And then Kumarala explicitly ties this notion into the 14 or 18 different lists of Vidyasthanas, which includes various texts and textual genres, including um, the epics, including the Puranas, including Nyaya. Um, however, that's understood, might be understood more broadly there, kind of logical reasoning, philosophical texts. And the idea is that all of these Vidyasthanas, these um, kind of paths uh, uh, or abodes of knowledge, that all of these are Vedic, that they're ultimately rooted in the Vedic authority and belong to one coherent textual tradition. So you see this evolution already from Shabara to Kumarala, kind of expanding of it, but Kumarala was still very, very strict about where he drew the lines of orthodoxy. And for example, Sankhya, he did not accept as Vedic. Um, so then there's an interesting story, I think, to be told that I try to tell in part, um, uh, a highly uh, 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 
well, a concise version in the last chapter of the book of how this Vidyasthana framework was then used by a variety of thinkers, not just Vedantins, the Mamsakas, also Dharmashastric authors or legal authors, um, theological writers of various sects, how they did this to present their own understanding of what this unified greater Vedic canon of text was. Um, and I try to argue that this is precisely what scholastics do. One of the things they do is they inherit a canon, often a vast canon, and we see this in scholastic traditions globally, right? In Europe, in China, uh, in the Islamic world, um, in um, uh, and in India, right? Where you receive a canon of texts, and it's a vast canon of texts, all of which are considered authoritative. And then scholastic commentators have the job of trying to reconcile and make sense of all of the contradictions in this canon. And this, I argue, is what you see unfolding over the centuries is already at a very early pre-Islamic period, uh, you have this notion of a greater Vedic canon, not just the Vedas themselves, but also classical Sanskrit texts like the epics and Puranas as part of it. And then as time goes on, you find uh, the boundaries of that canon expanding even further. And for example, Shaivas wanting to affiliate themselves with Vedic traditions and see themselves as part of this greater Vedic world. Uh, and of course, very famously, you see this in the case of the Sri Vaishnavas, Ramanuja uh, and the other Vishishtadvaitans, um, trying to show how the Vaishnava Pancharatra traditions they belong to are in fact Vedic right? And have that stamp of Vedic authority. So my argument is that without appealing to, um, as uh, Andrew Nicholson does, and to some extent, uh, David Lorenzen, without appealing to the presence of Islam as this other that somehow crystallized or formed Hindu identity, I do think undoubtedly that that probably did play a role. Um, but even in the pre-Islamic period in India, you see scholastics wrestling with this canon of Vedic texts. And my argument is that scholastic process itself of raising doubts, um, trying to resolve contradictions, uh, trying to harmonize uh, an authoritative canon is precisely what over the centuries leads to this formulation of this kind of greater Vedic canon. So what, what's the big point of this um, is that... Um, what do we think of when we think of modern Hinduism in quotation marks, the kind of textbook, maybe textbooks are better nowadays, right? But if you were reading late 20th century, a textbook uh, about Hinduism, well, what kind of presentation would you find there? Well, the thing that constructionists have criticized is it's all based on texts. It's based on Sanskrit texts. The Vedas are at the center. And then you've got the epics, you've got the Puranas, maybe some inclusion of Bhakti uh, as well. Um, so the, that vision uh, that you get in the textbook, I'm not trying to argue that that's what modern Hinduism is. I disagree with that. But that extremely influential vision of what modern Hinduism is, where does that come from? I would say that is not a colonial construction at all. And in fact, you can trace it and you can look at the evolution and development. And I should hasten to add, it, it never had one particular formulation, right? Many, many different thinkers um, coming up with different interpretations and, and buying with each other interpretation of what's in and what's out, what's part of the canon, how do we make sense of this, what's more central, what's less central. Um, but the idea that there was a canon, a unified canon, um, and a unified textually oriented tradition um, throughout the centuries that many, many thinkers saw themselves as belonging to. Well, last caveat is it's not clear that those thinkers saw themselves primarily as part of that tradition. 
So it's not clear that someone would have thought of themselves primarily as part of this Vedika, Vedic kind of greater Vedic tradition. Maybe primarily they would have thought of themselves as a Sri Vaishnava first, right? Um, However, at some level, that identity was operative, something that united different groups insofar as they were all trying to um, harmonize and make sense of this Vedic affiliation. So finally, in the chapter, I say, well, what do you call this? <laughs> Ideally, you would call it Vedism, um, but that's going to be misleading because when scholars refer to Vedism or Vedic religion, it refers just to the period of ancient Indian um, uh, uh, religion. Um, but really that's what thinkers themselves refer to. And I, I give some evidence of this, this idea of the Veda Marga, people refer to themselves as being on the path of the Vedas. Again, not in the narrow sense of just these ancient texts, but this broader Vedic canon. Uh, and again, that predates Islam. If anything, it was the presence of Buddhism and Jainism, I think rather than the uh, Islam is another that led to the development uh, uh, by Kumarala and by others um, of this sense of Vedic identity. Um, so yeah, we really don't have a good word for it, Vedism, Vedic religion, until you come up with Hinduism, right? Uh, and that's not the indigenous term, but as I say, there is an indigenous term, precisely this Veda Marga, um, this Vaidika Dharma. Um, and, uh, and then in the modern period, people have the word Hinduism, which I think tracks very closely to this self-understanding developed over the centuries in the pre-modern period. Again, I think the term is still misleading insofar as it's then seen to pick out not just that Sanskrit textual tradition, but all Hindu practice, which clearly it doesn't. And Nishtaldas is a fascinating case of this because in the final chapter of the Ocean of Inquiry, when he's doing this grand unifying synthesis, he does not mention a single vernacular text. So <laughs> he does not mention his own sampradaya, his own affiliation. The Dadu Panth is completely erased from this picture. So I think he was well aware that he wasn't presenting a picture of Hinduism, meaning all Hindu practice, but he was presenting a picture of this Vedic tradition that he saw himself as having received and communicated. And that uh, kind of unified tradition, textually based, originally Brahminical, but by Nishtaldas's day, I don't think we should call it Brahminism. I think that's a misleading term as well. Nishtaldas was probably not a Brahmin. Um, his story, life stories are hard to trust with him, but there are stories about him having faced caste discrimination in Benares when he went to study Vedanta. Um, and I give many other examples in the book of other non-Brahmins who in the early modern period are participating quite actively um, in this discourse. Um, so we don't really have a very good word for it, but the basic point, basic takeaway is modern Hinduism in quotation marks, right? Uh, as, as many people continue to think of Hinduism, um, and certainly as is prevalent in the 20th century, this view of uh, uh, textually based, Vedically Sanskrit-oriented Hinduism, that is not a modern picture uh, uh, exclusively by any means, but has its roots going back centuries and centuries uh, into the pre-modern period. That's that's the thrust of the argument. Fascinating. Um, we're pretty much at time for today. So was there anything else about the book that you hoped we touch on? Um. Well, <laughs> there's so there, there there's so much to cover with Nisteldas. His book was um, quite rich. Some um, uh, one last thing I'll say. One last thing I'll say is that I've been using a lot these terms Sanskrit and vernacular. 
Um, one other smaller argument I make that I think is important um, is that I think that's a misleading dichotomy is just thinking of Sanskrit and vernacular, where we think of Sanskrit as this high uh, uh, literary language and then vernacular, the language of everyday speech. But I try to argue with Nishtaldas by his day, you really have three linguistic strands there. You have Sanskrit, but then the vernacular itself, um, it, it, you have the high vernacular classical Hindi, and then you have something closer to everyday speech reflected in Nishaldas's work. So his root poems are composed in classical Hindi, very self-consciously, um, not the language that Nishaldas spoke. And then the commentary, something at least closer to the everyday language um, that a teacher would have used explaining a text um, to disciples. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind too, is that vernacular texts themselves, when we're studying the vernacular, have this rich history. And by the time you come to the 19th century, people are still looking back to that classical, say 16th century Hindi, but it's not the language they're speaking. It's become its own classical tradition. And very last point I'll squeeze in <laughs> is uh, other thing we haven't talked about is translation is very fascinating to think about with this too, is that whereas Sanskrit provided a way, a kind of pan-Indian mode of communication for people educated in it, what you see increasingly, I think, um, in the early modern and later modern periods is the use of translation to accomplish the same thing, is that texts reach people by being translated into different regional um, vernacular. So for example, the Ocean of Inquiry, it was translated at least eight times into Tamil, Telugu, Marathi, Gujarati, um, maybe Bengali, um, Sanskrit, and uh, English. So you have this text that's um, written in a vernacular, but still reaching a wide audience by being translated within just a few decades uh, of the original work's appearance into different um, languages. So there's a lot in the book there, just looking at language and the implications of what it means to write in the vernacular. Um, but I think I've said more than enough. Hopefully this will encourage some people uh, to take a look at the book if this interests you. Uh, without question, uh, there's plenty of content there for folks to be interested in. We shared much more about the inner workings of the book than on most podcasts, I'm sure. They're sufficient to entice specialists or specialists and burgeoning specialists alike. Um, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you, Raj. It was my pleasure. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Michael Allen, assistant professor at the University of Virginia, speaking with him about the ocean of inquiry, a brand new 2022 uh, OUP publication. Um, Stay well, stay as well as you can be in these times and keep listening, keep reading, and um, perhaps in your spare time, contemplate the path to enlightenment. Take care. <laughs>